0: All right, Judges 17, we're coming to the end of our study of Judges. And the history of Judges, the history of this book, which is 21 chapters, extends over about 300 years of Israel's history. And it began with the death of Joshua, following kind of the conquest of the Promised Land. And it ends right before the first king in Israel uh, is appointed by God, though he is reluctant to do so. Uh, named Saul, and that is the story that is first Samuel. The main character of the book of Judges is God, which is the main character of the entire Bible and any other book of the Bible Bible, but there are supporting cast members in this story, and they are a bunch of guys and a few women that we have called judges. Now the Bible never actually calls them judges, but it describes them as judging And really, it comes after um, the first judge, whose name was Moses. Um, Moses is not in the book of Judges. He's obviously prior to that. But he was the first one that spent many years, as God's people were gathered under his leadership, judging them. And what that meant was, similar to maybe a judge would do today, he uh, judged disputes, he helped them interpret the law, and he declared judgments basically representing God's authority. And there were other judges below him, but he kind of was the, the buck stops here kind of guy when they couldn't resolve conflict uh, or it was a major uh, conflict to, to be resolved. When he died or prior to his death, the mantle of leadership was passed to Joshua. And it was very clear God said he's going to lead and that he did. But when Joshua died, there was no clear man uh, identified to lead Israel next. Kind of no buck stops here type of judge. And so the story of judges is the story of this leaderless people. And because they're leaderless, they basically attempt to honor God and follow God by doing what is right in their own eyes. And that's a phrase that we see often in judges. There's no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is not like the worst things they can do because let's be honest, you can always do something worse. Even Hitler could have been worse. The reality is that they are doing what they think is right, driven by what they feel is right, driven what looks right to them, not necessarily what God has said. And so that leads them to fall into this cycle. We call it the cycle of, kind of disobedience, the cycle of judges. And it kind of organizes the whole book of Judges where Israel sins. They basically reject God, rebel against God. God punishes them by raising up a nation. And after being spanked with a nation, Israel cries, and God raises up a deliverer to judge Israel, to lead Israel. And these are the, the different judges that we see coming up. And then there's a time of rest until they enter the cycle again. And so up to this point, and actually throughout the whole book, there are 12 judges. One comes from each tribe of Israel. There are 12 tribes. And so we've seen all 12. Samson was the 12th judge, and yet we still have five chapters left, and I'll explain what that, why that is. Now... Judges reads like a 12 part mini series with each episode kind of more disturbing than the last one. And each of these guys you expect to kind of like be heroes and expect to be somewhat heroic, but they're heroic or what they do is pretty disturbing. They're disturbing people for the most part, strange at times, and they do a lot of disturbing things and they don't fit maybe the stereotype of what we'd expect from a hero. Now, A lot of these guys do a lot of bad things, quote, in the name of the Lord. And all it goes to show us is that the whole theme of the book is that men are unfaithful. Even the best of men, God's, quote, chosen men are unfaithful. They are broken, they are sinful, and yet God is still faithful. God is big enough, strong enough, in control enough, good enough to take all of this brokenness and accomplish His will. And it's important to remember that He only has brokenness to work with. There's not a clean bunch of people and dirty bunch of people, and he chooses the clean ones or whatever. There are only unclean people. There are only broken people. God is the only one that is good, and he is so gracious and powerful, he can take all of that and through it make something beautiful, and through it make something that honors him and glorifies him. So as we end Judges here in these last five chapters, we see that in Jewish writing it's important to remember that chronology is not as important as telling a story or the purpose of the story. And what I mean is that several of these stories that occur in the book of Judges probably occur about the same time in that these judges are contemporaries of one another, just in different areas. And some of them maybe actually be swapped a little bit as exactly when they happen and, and who they happen under. Now, that means, though, as you, as you look at the last five chapters, they're not chronologically connected to the previous 16. And the last five chapters kind of read like um, two appendixes, okay? And some would say it's an epilogue. I'm more inclined to say it's a prologue, kind of like a prequel, kind of like the Star Wars movies, right, that came out, totally destroyed the whole series. But they came out, praise God for Disney, so... That's just a sidebar, right? So, there's two appendices, though, and the first one is today, chapter 17 and 18. And what this first appendix does is basically describe kind of how Israel got to this way. And it specifically focuses on the destruction of the relationship between men and God. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are split in two. Hang with me, right? The first four commandments deal with man's relationship with God. And the last six deal with men's relationship with one another. And so in this first appendix, you're going to see that the relationship with God was destroyed. And that was really a large part of breaking these first four commandments, have no other gods before me, make no graven image. And we're seeing this all play out in the result. The second appendix deals with the brokenness that results from that. Basically, your relationship with God is destroyed. Then your relationship with one another is the next thing to fall apart. And so you see in these last kind of 19, 20, and 21 chapters, we'll see next week, are just destructive people, injustice, hurting each other in a very dark, broken sort of way. But it's an appendix describing basically how these people have gotten ultimately where they are. And so today's text doesn't necessarily connect to the story of Samson chronologically uh, or follow it just in line. As much as it kind of builds on it and maybe explains it a little bit, along with the rest of the book of Judges, and what we're trying to see is how does a people of God, a people who were feared, a people who were chosen, a people who were free, go or become a people who were enslaved, a people who were humiliated, a people who are so far off the mark? How does that happen? And we'll see it. Basically, it happens because of one thing, and it's the same problem we all struggle with as sinners is at the core of our hearts, there's a worship disorder. We are built for worship, but we have a condition that we're broken in that. And the thing about it is that, and you're going to see today, there are two groups of people that God has given to kind of help preserve that worship. Parents and pastors. And parents and pastors, in failing in the book of Judges and we'll kind of sense and even know in failing today, instead of preserving it, they've actually maybe perpetuated that disorder. Instead of preserving purity and worship and making sure we're honoring God, we've actually done worse. So we'll see how it goes here. We're in Judges 17, and I'm not going to read every verse. We're going to go through two chapters, but I'm not going to read every verse. We're going to break it into chunks, and I'll explain it. So here we go. The first six verses of chapter 17 says this. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Well, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household gods and ordained one of his sons who became His priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, our story begins with a young man named Micah and his mom. And apparently, one day, mom felt her purse, 1,100 pieces of silver, lighter. And so, I think she kind of knew who took it, so she declared a curse on whoever stole her money as her son's sitting in the corner, you know, quivering, right? Now, throwing down a curse was a major deal in ancient times. It wasn't just like, man, I hope this guy really suffers. It was like, this could actually happen, especially in the mystical, magical culture, if you will, of the Philistines. And so, the amount that's stolen, some argue that, well, it must be Delilah, because that's 1,100 pieces of silver. I don't think it's Delilah, but I do think they're trying to make a connection with The previous story to show that just as Samson was betrayed for money, particularly 1,100 pieces of silver times five, we're going to see God betrayed for money as well. And so what we see here is fearful of the curse, her son confesses that he is the thief, and she responds by basically trying to counteract her curse by declaring a big blessing. Now, Having promised to dedicate all the silver to the Lord upon her son giving it to her, she devotes just a little bit, which, again, is going to speak to her heart and where she's actually at. But she gives approximately 20% and instructs her son to have an image used or made out of that silver carved up for them to worship. Now, Micah makes that image, hangs it in his house, But not content just to have a false image hanging in his home, he decides to build an entire shrine. Shrine literally means house of gods. So he is building his own church, his own sanctuary full of gods. And it's complete with an ephod, which was the um, breastplate, if you will, that the high priest in the real temple actually wore that God instructed them to make. He makes a few more gods, and then he ordains one of his sons as the local pastor. And so, in essence, what you have is this guy building his own little Christian cult at his house, and it's actually, if you were to look at a map, you would see that Ephraim is kind of the northwest section of the country, the hill country, and then just a shtickle southeast of it is a city called Shiloh. And Shiloh is actually where the real tabernacle is, the real house of the Lord, and so he's really close to it, and he has built basically one to compete with it. And so, as you look into the story, just like the movie Toy Story, you go, I don't know where Dad is, right? You ever think about that? I think about that a lot, like, where is Dad, right? He's making babies, like, where is Dad? Anyway, no Dad, we don't know where Dad is in this story as well, but we have a mom, and Mom is supposed to... Be faithful to the Lord. She even calls upon the name of Yahweh in her big speech about what she's going to do with the money. And yet, instead of upholding the name of God in her family, she basically enables and makes it possible for her son to dishonor God. And it began with her not actually following the law that God had laid out about catching thieves. And if you, in your spare time, read the book of Leviticus, You'll notice in Leviticus chapter 6, when they catch a thief or a thief confesses, there were certain rules. One of the rules was you restore the money, 1,100 pieces of silver, plus one-fifth, plus 20%. That didn't happen. You also were supposed to go make sin offerings at the temple for what you had done. So instead of following God's very clear law, she decides to fund a new cult. And her new cult includes not only her son, but her grandson, two generations of perversion. And as we begin to talk about parents, if you're a parent, I want you to think not only about your generation, about your kid's generation, but your grandkid's generation, because that is the impact that you have been impacted with in your life and the impact that you're going to have on your own legacy, if you will. It's not that you need to make all kinds of elaborate plans for what your grandson's are going to do. Just know that what you are going to do And what you do impacts them, for better or worse. And so we see this is a huge family affair of building a huge cult. And ultimately, she, I think mom, does have a desire to worship. She has a genuine desire to worship, but she's not, as we see, going to worship in the right way. And at the heart of it, we see that sincere devotion, right? Devotion that is well-intended, is meaningless and even dangerous if it leads you to lawlessness and idolatry. See, God is not only concerned with who we worship, He is actually concerned with how we worship. Micah worships, devotes himself, builds an entire religious belief system devoid of the one true God. The scary thing, it has all the appearance of what you would, I guess, expect to find in a religion, in a faith. You've got your icons, you've got your sanctuary, you've got your clothes, you've even got your pastors. He has all the pieces except God. It was perhaps the first of many Christian cult. And as we see later in chapter 18, it becomes quite popular. And he gathers a congregation around the local city, local area, and people start to follow this cult that's only a few miles away from the true sanctuary of the Lord. And the text says at the very end of that first section, like, well, why does this all happen? Well, it implies because there was no king in Israel. And the people did what they felt looked right, felt right, or otherwise just seemed right. And it's not that having a king... Would have fixed everything. It's that having a particular kind of king, a leader who would be committed to preserving the purity of their faith, the purity of worship. And there was no king, and there wouldn't be for some time, but there were leaders that God had given to the people with a specific charge to uphold his name. They're called parents. Parents, even before priests and pastors, are charged with honoring God in their homes for their children. Parents are charged with teaching their kids the things of God. You cannot spend your entire life and faith depending upon a pastor or a church or an author or a podcast. If you are a parent or aspire to be one someday, You are responsible to honor God in your home. You are responsible for the worship of your home. I'll prove it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage that all parents should be familiar with, and it is one of the heart verses, if you will, the pillar verses of Judaism. Deuteronomy 6 Verse 1 says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, having told all the law, Moses is saying, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Interesting connection. Because we have a woman who is not protecting the purity of worship in her son or her son's son but in fact, involving and enabling him to dishonor God. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long, hear therefore, Israel and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers has promised you in the land, flowing milk and honey. If you skip down to verse 7, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You'll bind them as a sign in your hand. shall will be as a frontlet between your eyes. She'll write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the first thing after speaking the law for a second time. Moses says, The most important thing you can do is pastor your homes, uphold the name of God in your homes the number one thing that we are committed to for our pastors is not that they're fantastic preachers, fantastic Bible study facilitators or shepherds. That First and foremost, they're good dads and good husbands. And so if you are wondering, especially you dads and moms, what's the first thing I should do? There's two things. Know God and teach your kids because it will protect them. It will protect them from what happens in here. What we have here is a parent with what can only be described as an epic fail. And if you are an older parent, what I mean is you have kids who are older and they're out of your house and you really think like, hey, they're adults now, they're on their own. Wrong! You are still their parent. You are still their example. You are still there to uphold the honor of God, the worship of God before them so they can see it's your responsibility. And when parents get out of line, when parents fall, when parents kind of lose their way, God, by grace, gave us, guess what, priests. He gave Israel priests, and it was really to continue to charge the parents See, my job as a pastor here isn't primarily to make sure I teach you everything you need to know to be a Christian. It is certainly to charge you parents and to tell you that your job is to teach your children. But he did give us priests, and we'll see how well they did in Judges. Verse 7 says, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, tribe of priests. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, well, where do you come from? And he said to him, oh, I'm a Levite. Code word, I'm a priest. Of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn where I may find a job or a place. Micah said to him, well, stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver, and a suit of clothes, and a new car, and a nice house, a parsonage. What do you say? And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah, and then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a real Levite as a priest. My cult's got some legitimacy now. So let me give you a little bit of education because I don't want to assume that we all understand, well, what's a Levite? There were 12 sons, right? Those became 12 tribes. And after the conquest of the promised land that was promised to them, They divided the land up amongst those tribes, but there was one tribe that didn't get a certain section of land. That was the Levites. The Levites were a tribe of priests, and what they were given was various cities and pasture lands among all the other tribal lands. And they dwelt among there. And essentially, the Levites were uh, chosen servants of the Lord that ministered to the people that served at the temple and they were supported through the offerings of Israel. Full time. That was their job. Apparently, because of perhaps the unfaithfulness of this generation, giving is down. Because you have a priest traveling around looking for a job. He checked pastors.com couldn't find one and so he starts walking around looking to see where he could have an opportunity to be a pastor and so he happens upon in his travels the house of micah who offers him a position as pastor with all the benefits in his new cult that he made and the job came with a solid i mean it's nice annual salary He gave him some new priestly garments, just like they have at the real temple, right? And shelter and food and all kinds of spiritual authority over this house and several others around there. What do you say? And he is pleased. He likes his new job. And having, as I said, legitimized his cult with a real priest, Micah is also pleased, and now he expects God to, is going to prosper him because he's got a qualified pastor in the position now. Micah, and you see his heart, he believes that the essence of his religion, the essence of his spirituality, the essence of his faith, is to manipulate God to get what he wants. Instead of true faith, which is submission to the Lord and what he wants. So Micah builds basically a God and he buys a pastor. And in doing so, we see that not only have parents failed, we see that priests have failed to protect the purity of the people. Now, it's noteworthy that in the entire book of Judges, so the 16 chapters we've seen so far, you never hear any mention of the priests. So the story that's a picture of Israel as as the most unfaithful that they have possibly been the priests are silent and absent. And the only time you hear the priests is the last section of the book in these two appendixes, and it's the most disturbing part of the book. When the priests walk in, they're the ones that are leading the charge of unfaithfulness. The priests! The very guys who are called to protect it. And so we see that if this priest had been a priest, he would have done many things. He would have shepherded the people. He would have performed, yes, his religious duties and things of that nature. But he would have preserved the purity of the worship. And if he had come upon Micah's house, if he was truly concerned with the purity of worship, he would have ripped the shrine down and he would have called them to repentance. And said, what are you doing? You have built... You've broken the first four commands. Are you kidding me? Like the first one, have no other gods. You wouldn't made one. And now you're trying to hire me to perpetuate that? No way. You have dishonored God, rip it down, repent, go make some offerings. You screwed up royally. And you are going to bring sin and judgment upon yourself and upon your family. But he doesn't do that. He's like, I like the sanctuary like we've done with it. What, what are you going to pay me? That sounds good. Do I get a parking space out front? Fantastic. New clothes? I could use some new gigs. Yeah, you know, that's that's right. It serves him well. And a thing that basically happens is that he chose to portray the Lord for a paycheck and a position. And I don't want to throw every pastor there is under the bus because I would do that to myself at the same time. But let's be honest. There are some pastors in this world, leading churches right now, leading ministries, that are not devoted to the Lord. But they are devoted to themselves and their paycheck and their position. And they have ceased to represent the interests of God And they have sought to satisfy their own. They basically have become professionals. Professional Christians. And they act accordingly. And this guy, like many you see today, pretending to be spiritual, he flat out denies God's word because it proves to be profitable. Because it proves to be popular. Because it proves for him to be successful. Pastors... Genuine pastors called of God. Pastors are called to protect the purity of the people, not to obtain a position or profit from the people. And if you want to look at a job description for how Paul viewed what a pastor should be, it's very interesting. Yes, he calls for respect, but in describing his own experience as a pastor, He says this in 1 Corinthians 4. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed, and we are buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless, and when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and are still like the scum of the world, refuse of all things. That was how he viewed his experience. You don't hear much about profit and position and double honor and respect and those types of things. Because he's concerned with protecting the purity of worship. And I pray, because I know my flesh and the flesh of all men, how easily you can get to a place where you start proclaiming things Making decisions and doing things because it will make you guys happy, because it will make me profitable, because it will do a lot of things but not protect the purity of worship. And once a pastor gets away from his goal is to preserve God's honor, proclaim God's honor, when he starts going away from that, that's when he starts saying things and thinking about, how is this going to be received? I don't think I'll talk about sin too much because the guy that gives a lot may actually not anymore, and you start making decisions based off how it might benefit me as opposed to what would honestly honor the Lord. So pray for your pastors. Pray for your leadership. Not that we will build an amazing church, simply that we will stay faithful, purely devoted to God, even if it means we're not as successful as we might be if we decided to do something different. story continues into chapter 18, and we see that perverted worship that begins in a family, that begins to include pastors and, and priests, extends to all people. It's contagious. It says this, in those days, again, there, were no king, there was no king in Israel. In those days, the tribes of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. It's important to remember, Dan was the tribe that Samson came from. For until there was no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them, so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah, from Ashtel, to spy out the land to explore. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim and to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Well, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? Now, you have, should wonder, like, how do they know him out of all the Levites? You'll find out at the end, and it's horrible. Let's put it there, a little show, Like, What does that mean? Okay, you'll find out, right? He said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, well, okay, inquire of God, and please that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go was under the eye of the Lord. Which all good, false, preaching, cult, pastor, freaks will say. Very general prophecies, right? Oh, yes, the Lord is there. What does that mean, right? The Lord is watching you. Amen. All right, so... We move from a wandering priest to a wandering tribe, and why is this tribe wandering around? Well, this is why I think this is actually a prologue to the whole book of Judges, a little bit of a prequel. The tribe of Dan, just like all the tribes, was given a a section of land, right? And if you, not that you get to imagine, right? If You saw Israel laying there in the middle left section on the coast of the Mediterranean was where Dan was supposed to have their land. That's where the allotment was given. That just happened to be the land of the Philistines. Good answer. Now, they, you will see in Joshua chapter 19, were given this land, and it also says in Joshua 19 that they couldn't take the land, that they, in fact, the words they use is lost the land. And so we see Samson was this Danite, and we see that the Philistine problem was supposed to have been taken care of years ago. And because dads, clan leaders, and others were not faithful to do what God asked them to do, which said, I give you this land, they're defeated enemies, go clean up the rest, Dan failed. And they didn't fail because of ability, they failed because of faithfulness, or lack thereof. And so now they're wandering around because they can't take the land that they were supposed to take, or they didn't take the land, and they're trying to find a new place. So they send these five guys to go find a place that they can actually conquer that might be a little easier to take. And so these good old-fashioned church hoppers going around from where they're supposed to be, they come upon the shrine of Micah. Hey, new church in down, let's check it out. So they go in, and they hear this Levite. Now, they were given a command, just as all nations were given a command. It says, if you find false altars, what are you supposed to do with them? Rip them down. Kill God's enemies. Wipe them out. So instead of destroying the cult and killing the Levite-turned-cult pastor, they go, hey, would you pray for us? And then in, instead of actually hearing Yahweh, right, because they are like, well, he prayed, right? He didn't hear Yahweh. Why? Because here's what the Lord would have said. Get your tails back to the land I gave you and take care of business. But instead, like I said, as all false prophets and fake pastors do, a very general prophecy suited to whatever they wanted to hear. The Lord's eyes are upon you. Go. Now, Here's the truth about pastors and churches. Is that if you go to enough of them, you will be able to find a pastor who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. And I pray that never becomes us. I pray that we're never afraid to speak hard truth with gentleness, with love, but hard truth. Even if it makes us unpopular, even if it makes us less successful, I'd rather die knowing we've been faithful to what God has commanded us to say. Even if it means telling you things that you don't want to hear. But they hear what they want to hear, and they go and they find a very peaceful city, right? They go up north, and they, like, peek through the bushes, and they see this beautiful little city and, like, deer prancing around and, like, you know, people singing and the birds making dresses for women. It's like this, like, beautiful place. They have no defenses, no military, and they're like, the Lord has given this to us. Let's kill them, okay? Now, these guys are just complete cowards, right? They couldn't fight the Philistines, who were too strong, so they go and fight people who are not, you know, they're still enemies of God, if you will, but they're certainly a lot more vulnerable and weak. They go back to get their army, and as they're returning to go wipe out Disneyland, they stop at Micah's house. They were very encouraged, it seems, by the prayer they got. And the spiritual experience they had at this pagan cult little church, they decided to take it with them. So they show up, and they start taking everything, right? They're just grabbing, like, give me those gods. They worked great, you know, stuff them in the bag. And they're taking the whole sanctuary, and then the Levite shows up. And he said to them, in verse 19, you know, what, what are you guys doing? What? what, what? He says, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be a father and a priest to us. I mean, isn't it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and household gods and carved image and went along with the people. So what do we do? Well, you have this priest who, again, has an opportunity even to let the gods go. Whatever, you guys are unfaithful, and, and call them back to purity. But instead, he takes the opportunity to go from local small-town pastor to mega-church pastor with all the salary and the parking spot and the big church and people listening to him. And he's like, Yeah. I am on my way. And so they travel north, and they go to this defenseless people. And as they're traveling, they got 600 guys going. Micah returns home. He's like, what happened to my God? Right? My God's gone. My priest is gone. I think I see him. Let's go, guys. So they start running, right? Their whole cult church is running after him. So they're running after him to get him. And they confront him. And he's yelling, oh, God, that, ah! right? That's what he says, right? You think that, right? 23. And they shouted to the people. So they're like, hey, Right? Some of them hear him. There's 600 people. So the, the back end turn around. And here's what they say to him. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? They should come up with such a company. Right? Because he's got a group of people Micah does with him. Micah says, you take my gods that I made which is just the stupidest statement you could ever make, right? You take the gods that I made and the priest, and you go away, and what have I left? How, how then do you ask me, what is the matter with you, right? So Micah's coming up, and am like, what's wrong with you? He's like, wrong with me? What's wrong with you? you just took my whole church. Isn't it obvious what's wrong? I got nothing left. You took everything. Now, that's big. Put that on the shelf for a second. So then they respond to him. I love it. I mean, the, I tell you, you, just read the narratives of the Bible. They're fantastic, right? Here's what it says. And the people of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us. Okay, so you got this back-end group that's like turning and talking to them, and the rest of them up here. And here, notice what they say. Don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, right? I mean, we're nice. We're very reasonable. I mean, we would listen. But there's some angry guys up there. They'll come and kill you if you, hear, if you say that. So just calm down. Okay, okay, see you later. And they leave. And Micah's left there. It says the people and Dan went their way. And when Micah saw it, they were too strong for him. He turned and went back to his home. Don't feel sorry for Micah. Oh, he lost his, and he a pagan cult builder. And a thief. So Micah returns home. The Levite gets his new position. And you've got to think about the perspective of this Levite for a second. From all signs, this Levite and the devotion that he has demonstrated from his perspective has been pretty successful. He must be on the right track, right? He's gotten two jobs at this point. He's grown. And I think it's a hugely important lesson for us just on that fact to remember that Just because something is fruitful and successful and big and growing doesn't necessarily mean it's faithful. And I'm not trying to say that anything with size is not faithful, only to say that just because it's got size or momentum or popularity or growth or success, individuals or churches or groups, whatever, does not mean it is faithfully devoted. In fact, it may be very unfaithful. Yes, we should measure things by their fruit, but we should also go back and hear what is actually taught, what's actually at the heart, because fruit can be deceiving at times, or at least what we think is fruit. So both Micah and the Levites show us really how men can begin on a path that, quite frankly, appears spiritual but easily becomes completely false in its worship. Because who we worship, as I said, matters, but so does how. And while we do gather as a community here to worship, that is why we're here, in case you were wondering. We gather here to ascribe glory to God, and we do it in many ways. We do it as we fellowship, we do it as we serve, we do it as we give, we do it as we we proclaim God's word. But Romans 12.1 reminds us that worship doesn't just happen on Sunday between 9 and noon. In fact, Romans 12.1 reminds us that how we live every day, those are our spiritual sacrifices. That is an act of worship. And the problem in this story is not about parents and pastors and people worshiping or living before or to the wrong God. It is all of them worshiping the right God the wrong way. They go, how is, is there a wrong way to worship? Really? We should be sobered by a passage in Leviticus chapter 10 where Aaron, so you got Moses, his brother Aaron, he's got some sons. Aaron was the priest. And Aaron's sons go to basically um, make offerings at the temple to worship before the Lord and represent the people. Leviticus 10 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. There is a true and a false worship. And it's hard to distinguish them at times but not for God. We could fake each other out really well, but you can't fake God. But false worship, I believe, some telltale signs is that it's very man-focused and self-centered. And false worship begins to love the forms of worship, whether that be a certain kind of music, a certain practice, certain program, you begin to love the forms of worship more than the God who actually inspires them. In false worship, you begin to seek the feelings, the emotion, the very individualized experiences more than God who actually gives them. And in false worship, you begin to desire prosperity and success more than you desire what God desires to give you the one who owns everything. See, false worship, I firmly believe, is, is not a lifestyle devoted to God. Quite frankly, false worship is a spiritual-sounding tool to authorize whatever lifestyle you want. you got to put some spirituality in there to make it good and legitimate. Because false worship will always lead us toward, I think, disobedience and away from God. And it may appear very religious. It may sound and feel and even look very spiritual. But it is always wrong because it will always lead us to idolatry and to lawlessness. Well, how do I know? What do you mean? Worship, spirituality, my devotion leading to lawlessness. Well, here's how you know it leads to lawlessness or a sign of it is when looking spiritual has become more important than actually being holy. You begin to abandon God's word for the approval of men, and what happens is you begin to spiritualize sin. And those things that are clearly mandated in scripture or commanded in scripture, you begin to go, mm, I don't know about that, and you do it in a spiritual way. And your worship, quite frankly, the way you live, the way you devote yourself to God, begins, in fact, to include those things that God has clearly said do not do. And those things that He has said to do become optional. Your worship's become lawless. Well, how do you know if your worship's become idolatrous? Well, I think what happens is you begin to find meeting more in the act or the tools of worship than you do in the object of worship, who is God himself. Really, quite simply, you begin to enjoy God's stuff more than you enjoy God. And here's how you know you're idolatrous. Ready? Great test for everybody. When that one thing that is key to your faith, what's that? Could be a relationship. Could be security. Could be from a job. Could be from family. Could be having kids or not. Could be lots of things. When that one thing that is the linchpin for your faith, the one thing that's not God or not His Word, is taken away from you, do you sound like Micah? I have nothing. I've lost it all. Because the one thing Micah did have, he still had God. That's not where his faith was. That's not where he found his meaning or his hope, his joy. He found it in something else. And when it was taken away, that was revealed. Worship became idolatrous. We're not called to simply worship in a way that sounds spiritual or feels spiritual, even looks spiritual. We're called to worship God in spirit and in truth. False worship makes Jesus out to be someone important but not really essential or supreme in our life. This kind of worship looks spiritual, but it leads us away from Jesus and leads us to start to depend on ourselves for our own righteousness, to disobey more, and to devote ourselves more to the world because that's more important to us. True worship sees Jesus as supremely worthy of adoration and submission and attention. True worship sees Jesus as supremely worthy worthy of adoration and submission and attention. And all things that are in our lives, whether they be food or drink or language or relationships or money or job or roles as parents, become tools through which we can glorify God more. Not things that benefit us, not things that... We stop asking questions like, what can I get out of these things? How can this make me more successful? How can this make my life more meaningful? Instead, we begin to ask ourselves, how can I make much of God through this? Whatever it is, that's worship. And this kind of worship leads you to deny yourselves more, to obey more, and to depend and devote yourself to Jesus more, whether it looks spiritual or not. Let's close it out the last two verses. says the people of Dan took all this cult paraphernalia and set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were the priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. And so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Why did they recognize the Levite's voice? His name was Jonathan, and he was well known because he was the grandson of Moses, the grandson of Moses, the very people, the key people and the institution that God built to protect worship, to preserve worship, to uphold the name of the Lord in the middle of a darkened world had decayed so much that now it was perpetuating the very opposite. And I have a great fear that not only have our families done that, that the quote Christian family today is actually doing more to dishonor God than to honor Him, but so are churches. Because of their failure to take a stand and identify with the purity of worship in the name of God and uphold the things that are His. And when that happens, what we see is the house of gods began to compete with the house of God. And the essence of worship became basically something where you're using God to get what you want and not submitting to what he wants. And what happens when that happens, you you it's not just unfortunate, it's not just, well, that's a bad thing. It's you are actually working against God. You are fighting God. You're doing more than rebelling. You're actually trying to accomplish something apart from him, to honor something apart from him. And so there's very little positive in these chapters. This appendix is is dark, and it's full of failure. But the first verse of chapter 19 declares the problem and the solution. And so I, I plead with you as a pastor as a brother, as a fellow father and husband, as a friend, as whatever it will do for you to listen. The problem and the solution was godly leadership. They needed godly leadership to lead them to Jesus, to lead them to God. And we need desperately leadership in the home. We need leadership in the home. And that's for mothers and fathers, but especially you fathers, and especially you husbands. You've got to lead your home. You've got to ensure that the worship in your home, the name of God, is held up high and purely in your home. And we need leadership in the church. We need parents, very simply, who love Jesus. We need parents who worship Jesus with everything they have who talk about Jesus, who talk with Jesus, who proclaim Jesus constantly. We need parents devoted to making their children happy in Jesus and not just making them happy. And we need pastors who love Jesus. We need pastors who are more than just a a pedigree, more than just a Abbreviation after name, more than just years of experience. We need pastors who love Jesus, pastors who worship Jesus, pastors devoted to making their churches happy in Jesus more than making the church or their checkbooks happy. We need parents and pastors, quite frankly, who love us enough to protect us from false religion, not just by making lists of what not to do, but by leading us in worship that is both spiritual and spiritual and truthful. And that, that takes place here as a family. The thing that warms my heart most is when I hear men singing, quite frankly. And men who are too chicken to sing. Too chicken to in a place of worship with brothers and sisters who all identify the same thing. And you don't have the gumption to just open your mouth and sing because whatever reason, I just don't do that. You're a fool. And that's evidence of the fact if you can't worship in a place of safety with brothers and sisters, how can you worship out there? Not in singing, just in living. And so as we come to the table today, know that we come, and this is an act of worship. As I said, we worship and as we fellowship. There are people worshiping as they serve. They're doing it to honor God, not because it's the funnest thing in the world to do, to watch kids who are crazy, right? We have people who who make cookies in honor of the Lord, not so that you're happy, though it is a blessing to us all. Keep doing it, right? We have people who, who dedicate time to lead us in worship and song. We have people who prepare all these things. And our opportunity to worship is to sing and to do and to come to the table And to, honestly, communion is is a worship of both spirit and truth. There's a spiritual experience that happens here. Don't get stuck in the mechanism and the routine. This is your opportunity to come before the Lord, to come to the cross, to bear your heart and to really examine whether you are devoted to the Lord or whether you're faking it because you're not faking Him. And to lay it there, he already knows it. And he says, I forgive you, I love you, but I'm going to cause you and love you so much you're going to change. There's a spiritual experience that happens at this table. Don't minimize that. But it's a spiritual experience that's rooted in truth. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in a man named Jesus Christ who came and died. Who bore your sin, not just as an example of suffering, but as your substitute for your sin, the death you deserved, and then rose again to give you new life. It's rooted in truth. And so as you come to the table, this is an act of worship. And for some of you, it may be the first act of worship. For others, it's a reminder that as you go out this week from here, you live for an audience of one. And he has empowered you to live and to worship